You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us today for a special episode. Now I know most of us tune into Metamorphosis for information about different specialties, but given that no physician practices in absolute isolation, we thought taking a brief look and understanding our colleagues in different professions might be a good opportunity to expand our knowledge of their scope and understand how it might intersect with ours. Now obviously no two practitioners have exactly the same experience, but we hope that these conversations help expand our understanding and appreciation for those on whom we often heavily rely. Today we're taking a look at social work and nursing. Enjoy the episode. And today helping expand our understanding of social work is Jill Withers. Jill, thanks for joining us today. Mm-hmm, no problem. Thank you for having me. Jill, can you give us a brief rundown on how you came to social work and also what routes are there to becoming a social worker? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so actually I was first able to see the purpose of a social worker through um, multiple hospitalizations of my own family members and um, the death of my grandfather years ago. And the role and compassion of that particular social worker, that person, had such a big impact on my family as we were going through that difficult time. So as a family, we felt like we almost had a friend on the inside, as it were, um, in that in that social worker. And um, as we navigated through a very foreign medical system to us at the time, um, that was a huge comfort to us to have someone we felt um, was advocating and just kind of supporting us through that. But looking back, I think I've always had an interest in helping people in both practical and emotional ways. And I've always loved hearing stories of others. Um, actually, even as a young child, I remember in elementary school having little counseling sessions with friends at lunch or recess um, <laughs> over the years. <laughs> and I actually remarked it many different times in high school and in different workplace settings after that, before coming to social work, that I always felt I had a bit of a sign on my forehead that said, tell me everything about your life. Um, and I just definitely found like people were able to open up to me easily and I, I loved listening to them. Yeah, so the, the routes in becoming a social worker, um, so in, in British Columbia, the term social worker uh, is a protected term and requires both a degree and a final exam um, from an accredited university. Uh, and then a registered social worker, of course, requires registration from the BC College of Social Workers. So, um, yeah, so every every person who calls himself a social worker should be registered and have gone through the proper channels. Yeah, so, um, so people often but won't always do a diploma in social services first and then apply for a final two years of the social technical social work degree program. Um, and then they have the choice of taking... A generalist degree, which is what I did, or a specialization in child welfare. So there's kind of two routes that social workers will often do. And um, I would say, at least in my class, there was quite a, it was a bit of a 50-50 divide. There are lots of people that do go into child welfare. Um, And the programs are becoming, the social work degree programs are becoming more and more competitive. uh, And applicants are often doing hundreds and sometimes thousands of of volunteer hours um, on top of competitive GPAs, so it's it's definitely an application to get into the program kind of situation. Um, yeah, and then once in the program, then there's all kinds of practicums required for each year of study, and then um, I think the last, the third and fourth year require uh, practicums about 
three to 400 hours each. So there's lots of practical um, kind of real life experience included in the degree program, which then hopefully makes you feel a little bit um, more comfortable in the jobs afterwards. And then, yeah, and then often there are, um, there's or there's master's programs, there's doctorate programs in Canada, and um, more and more people are going into that as well. And it's nice that there are part, part and full time of both of those programs. Hmm. So I hear a lot of similarities to the pre-med journey in having to sort of deliberately plan and put in the classroom and extracurricular time to even get started in the profession. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. A lot of a lot of hours invested. <laughs> yeah, yes. So Jill, the breadth of social work must be, you know, exceedingly large. And so I'm wondering if you could give us a generic sort of rundown or what social workers do or what they can do depending on their contexts. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, so social workers cover a very broad spectrum. Um of workplaces and they practice as um, counselors, advocates, administrators, brokers, um, often in different government agencies. Lots will work in child welfare, adoption, family service agencies, um, and then some in mental health, of course, hospitals, community health, substance use, and in corrections actually as well. Yeah, so then on top of government agencies, you've got um, nonprofit, community development um, organizations, and then teaching and research. And actually, more social workers are getting into private practice counseling, um, especially these days with the increased need for mental health support. Um, so there's yeah, there's lots of there's lots of options. Um, and so in every context, and in, in all of those agencies and programs, um, social workers seek to look at the whole person and focus on enhancing the well-being and capacity of kind of individuals, families, and communities um, within their own environment. So social workers follow a very specific code of ethics, uh, which highlights the belief in the dignity and inherent worth of all human beings and their right to self-determination. So th those are kind of um, kind of some tenets, the main tenets that we follow in every um, every capacity or, or every workplace. Yeah, and then in every environment, basically we're we're helping people through life challenges, um, whatever that may be. So um, helping children and families, helping helping those in the foster system helping those with mental or mental and physical illness, uh, helping those through grief and loss and healthcare systems, helping those in the community with poverty and um, discrimination, advocating for those that are in abusive situation, situations, addictions, divorce, unemployment. It kind of goes on and on um, with whatever kind of life challenges there are. That's kind of why we're here to help those through that um, as much as we can, and of course, trying to develop um, capacity in those in those people to take on those life challenges um, on their on their own eventually. So, kind of building capacity for life's challenges um, with with people. So, given the wide swath of working environments, is there any formalized subsequent training after their degree that a social worker might engage with, or does a lot of it exist as sort of on the job training? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it, it, it definitely depends where you are, um, from, from the, from the hospital or from, yeah, from the healthcare perspective, you can get into hospital work with a degree, um, often for 
you know, depending on the on the site, often you will need a master's um, depending on the unit. So lots of times critical care requires social workers to have a master's degree. And then there are many opportunities to train on the job. There are courses you can take, um, you know, specific to the department that you're in. Um, and, and every social worker who gets into healthcare is required, required to take a certain number of what's called core training courses um, on specific legislation, specific therapeutic interventions, counseling skills. So there's, there's a lot of training that goes into especially healthcare social workers um, to kind of manage different areas of life because there are so many, so many challenges and they require so much, so um, kind of a breadth of knowledge of, of many different things. So as I understand it, you currently work in a hospital. Can you tell us what your role there looks like? Yeah. Yeah, so I work in, in acute care um, in Abbotsford and Langley hospitals. And then also as a, and so that's with Fraser Health. And then I also recently um, got a casual position with the BC Cancer and uh, as a, a patient and family counselor there. So... Yeah, so social workers are kind of one part of the pie in um, in healthcare teams. So they they play a role in uh, in an interdisciplinary team, kind of like your you know you've got your physiotherapists, your dietitians, speech and language pathologists. So social workers are kind of one of the team um, and and are usually assigned to a particular unit. So usually there would be kind of one social worker per unit. So per maternity unit per emergency unit, that kind of thing. And so they work on um, specific referrals for specific reasons from physicians and other health professionals. And so they wouldn't necessarily see every patient on a particular unit. So there would have to be, um, there just isn't time in the day. Um, so there, <laughs> there has to be a particular reason. And often that will come out through, you know, nursing initial assessments or physician conversations or whatever that may be. Usually it will come out that there's some sort of concern, um, and so basically social workers would then go to that particular patient or family member, depending on what the, what the issue is, and address kind of that uh, practical and emotional impact of basically of illness and treatment. And, and lots of times it has to do with illness and treatment. Conduct, conduct assessments with patients and families and um, basically try to figure out what's, what's needed. Oftentimes we're addressing risk, need for services, support network, identifying strengths and coping mechanisms, um, of course, all using counseling skills. Lots of times there's conflict mediation, and then we need to have in-depth knowledge of the community resources around us, and um, and legislation actually is really important for us. Um, yeah, and then often in a hospital, especially, time is very limited, and so social workers are working within a what we call a crisis intervention or brief solution focus model. So basically, kind of assisting with whatever we can as quickly as we can because um, acute care is is busy and is is usually happening very quickly. Um, so if, if you don't mind, I'll give you a couple examples of kind of what, you know, oftentimes referrals differ from unit to unit. So, um, so an example would be in an intensive care unit or an ICU unit, there would be a social worker there, of course, and um, often they're frequently asked to facilitate family meetings um, with physicians and other disciplines, depending on what the situation is. 
And, um, and so this family, these family meetings often will revolve around an NICU end of life decision-making. And so social workers are kind of, um, responsible for appointing a temporary substitute decision maker. If someone's intubated, then they need to, um, we need to figure out who, who is going to make decisions basically on this person's behalf. And so it's, it's a very kind of legislated process with the Healthcare and Consent Act, trying to figure out legally who is responsible or who is, who is allowed to make decisions on this person's um, behalf if, if there is a decision needed. Um, and so this isn't a simple, usually a simple situation. And social workers are often required to mediate kind of complicated and heightened family dynamics on top of providing grief counseling, community resources, there might be children involved. And so that's just kind of one example of, um, of one thing that we might be asked to do kind of in an, in an intensive care unit. Um, and then another example, so like child protection social workers, I'm sure we've all heard of um, in the community that are designated responders for children in abusive and neglectful situations, um, social workers in the hospital are designated responders for adults. Um, who are who are at risk of abuse, neglect, self-neglect. And kind of the big caveat is if they're not cognitively capable of seeking support for themselves, um, they fall under what's called the adult guardianship legislation. And so social workers are then required to look at um, developing safety plans and trying to figure out how to safely transition this adult back into the community um, when they're medically stable. So this is a very kind of complicated process as well. It requires a lot of risk management, kind of um, working with the other team members, working with the families, um, working with the physicians to try to figure out um, what is a safe plan for this for this person. And then of course there's a very practical referrals. So Patients may be dealing with a, di a new diagnosis of some kind, um, cardiac, cancer, whatever it may be, and they might just need information on financial programming or education on how to find um, low-cost housing or low-cost counseling or, or simply just need a, a bus ticket or a ride home. So it, it's just the varieties of referrals we, we receive are endless. Um, it could be literally just about anything from practical to emotional and everything in between. And so we're required to um, kind of know a lot about a lot of things, of course, as every profession is about their their areas, um, but kind of be very well connected with our community because we do a lot of, of working with community resources and um, and those sorts of things. Yeah. And oh, man, it sounds, I think, incredibly intimidating having to be an expert in like legislation, community resources, um, having to navigate family dynamics all while trying to be the cool head in the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely overwhelming. And I feel like when you're a new social worker coming into the hospital, especially those first few months are very overwhelming and your phone rings and you're like, what in the world am I going to get today? Um, and so, I mean, especially those working in the emergency departments and the ICUs, um, there's a lot of tra trauma, there's a lot of crisis. Um, everyone's heightened when they're in the hospital, right? Everyone is, is on edge and there's a lot of grief. And, and so it's, it's, it's being able to <clears throat> kind of calmly come into the room and calmly assess what's going on, um, to not add any angst <laughs> to any kind of situation, so it's about being very, um, yeah, just being very mindful of what's going on and being able to have the skills to, um, to figure out what the next step steps are. 
Yeah. Jill, it's obviously no secret this podcast is focused towards those who are either practicing or learning how to practice medicine. So from your perspective, could you give us a flavor of how your work ends up intersecting with your medicine colleagues? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so social workers, um, we work with physicians all the time. So we have discussions with them all the time around patient concerns, um, and especially as they pertain to decision-making and transition planning or discharge planning. So by us and our role addressing kind of the psychosocial barriers or the, the barriers outside of, of medicine, um, social workers are, are hoping to help patients receive kind of the maximum benefit of their medical treatment because their patients are in the hospital to receive medical treatment, that much is clear. And so what we're trying to do is help them receive kind of everything they can get out of that medical treatment and hopefully present or prevent um, any kind of readmissions for that person. Um, yeah, so, so I have an example for you, um, if you like. So um, I so I was asked to see this gentleman for financial concerns um, kind of related to a cardiac condition. So it came to light in conversation from this person due to kind of a combination of health, loss, depression, financial concern, all of these things he hadn't um, been able to do his taxes in a few years, which of course makes you ineligible for medication coverage through our program called Fair Pharmacare. So he hadn't been able to afford his cardiac medications, which of course is incredibly important, hadn't been taking them, and then ended up in the ER. Um, so at that time, if the medical team would have just treated his symptoms and sent him home with new prescriptions, told him to take them, um, that wouldn't have happened. He would have been back the next week, right? But fortunately, this wonderful physician, by asking the patient more about himself, um, kind of going a little bit of the extra mile to ask this patient what was going on for him, this physician was able to find out that this was happening. And so then they asked me to, to see him. And so because I was involved with them from the beginning of this person's admission, um, and not just the end, which sometimes happens where someone's going out the door and then you're asked to kind of go and fix all of their issues. But because I was involved from the very beginning, I was able to do so much for him. So I was able to find, you know, a CRA out outreach worker to provide him with his T4 information. And then I was able to get a community agency to do his taxes, get his fair pharmacare figured out, get his medication coverage renewal done the next day through some advocating. And then we, we addressed his loss, his mental health concerns, all of that kind of stuff. And so not only was he able to continue taking his medications and likely future admissions would be decreased, we were able to kind of address his whole person, all of the things that were happening with him, um, all of the social determinants of health. And he was discharged home in a much better place than when he came in. And so, you know, that, that definitely speaks to... Um, you know, the assessments of that physician, just recognizing that there was more challenges there than just medical and how much those psychosocial challenges then affect the medical and affect the recovery of his medical condition. You know, if you're not taking your cardiac meds, you're going to be in trouble. So, um, so I think, I think definitely we're very involved with physicians kind of just hoping and, and, and hoping to help with maximizing the medical treatments that that's being provided by physicians in the, in the hospital. Hmm. Yeah, man, that's so, wow. That's so challenging to hear because, you know, for the number of times that we hear that term, social determinants of health in our classes, 
I can imagine myself far too easily getting tunnel visioned in, in the thick of the pathophysiology of whatever the patient's presenting with. Meanwhile, forgetting that they have a whole entire life outside of the office visit that's actively influencing their experience of health and knowing that ignoring all those other really important parts of their life isn't actually doing them any favors. Mm -hmm. But being able to involve as many other experts in those other areas of their life uh, will set them up for the maximum success. Yes, absolutely. Beautiful. Jill, in the last few moments, I'm wondering, is there any wisdom that you'd like to share with the next generation of physicians from the perspective of a social worker? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think I think you touched on a really important point, and that would be to use your team. So I think the, you know, in my opinion, the best patient care occurs when the whole team is used, um, not just not just medical colleagues, but when the acute medical needs are addressed in an admission, and and only the acute medical needs. There are so many factors that are often missed, and you know, physicians they don't have time to address all of the factors. And so that's, that's why you have a whole team. And so my advice would be to get to know your team, get to know what each individual discipline does so that you can make those timely and appropriate referrals at the beginning of the admission to address the needs of the whole person. Um, and I think then, hopefully, we're increasing overall health and well-being to our patients um, kind of together as a team, which is hopefully the model we're striving for. Sounds like a great thread of wisdom and maybe a good place to stop for today. Joe, we are so appreciative of your time and uh, helping sort of demystify social work a bit. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Thanks for having me. Okay, up next we have Tanisha, who is an OR nurse in Terrace, BC. Tanisha, thanks so much for joining us here today. You're welcome. It's good to be here. So I have to be honest, even before starting medicine, I had the utmost respect and almost a, a fearful reverence of nurses. You know, from my limited time so far in med school, it's clear that you know because nurses tend to spend the most contact hours or time with patients, uh, they're almost a little bit more keyed into their status than anyone else on the, on the team, it seems, right? They're providing care directly, uh, medications, answering questions, that sort of thing. Um, and, and plus, I've noticed that they will be more likely to interact with family members, you know, giving daily phone updates, that sort of thing. Have you found that to be the case? And what else am I missing from sort of a, a day in the life of the average nurse? Um, so it is actually the case. Um, one of the things that, that I've come to realize is that you, the doctor gets the glory in quotes, but it's really the nurse that is... Um, one-on-one -on -one with the patient like you know what's going on you can pick up the subtle changes and so on so it's really a caring compassionate um, profession that you have to love what you do or else you won't do a good job give an example of when you were able to be the eyes and ears for a patient in need so um i worked labor and delivery before um, the operating room and just, I, I really love L&D. That's one of the places I would go back to in a heartbeat if I didn't have to do night shifts. <laughs> but um, just, like, I had a patient, and um, she was very young, and um, I guess not exposed in terms of, I'm, I know she knew she was having a baby, but she wasn't really sure of, like, the process and how painful it would be and just the things that came up, comes along with that. And the doctor was very harsh with her, like extremely harsh. Um, they were of the same cultural um, 
background too and I picked up that that in itself kind of made her the doctor not compassionate it's like you should know what this is you know and she was very harsh with her like don't even have another child because you can't handle it and like and she was just bawling her eyes out she was so hurt and um, I guess overwhelmed with all that was happening and I just had to advocate for her I had to step in and just you know like talk her through what to expect and all of that after even after the doctor left because obviously she didn't stick around for very long and um just coached her through the entire process i was able to be there for her delivery and so on and it was just good to see how it just transformed her um her, her experience while she didn't know in the beginning what to expect had a bad experience and then just getting some support she was able to pull through Wow, I'm sure that isn't the first time that sort of thing has happened. So sad. It is sad. Yeah. Yeah. So as I understand that you currently only work in the OR, is that right? Yeah, I only do operating room now, yes. Okay, so you've obviously worked in a number of different nursing contexts. Um, Sort of a basic question, but can you kind of take us along the educational journey, what's involved in becoming a nurse up to this point? All right, so I actually went into nursing as a second career. I was a high school teacher, mathematics, and then when we migrated to Canada, um, I just had interactions with students, like um, taking public transportation and being scared. I'm like, no way am I going into teaching here, and because uh, it's just a different culture. In Jamaica, like they wear uniforms. Here, they wear casual clothes, so it's just even those distinctions kind of blur the lines, and, it, and I was intimidated, and... Um, and I, and I went into nursing, um, but prior to that, I had the, my mom had a surgery, and just the exposure from going to the hospital and seeing how the nurses took care of her, you know, I, I, I appreciated what they did, but I'm like, oh no, I, it's not for me, I can't do the whole blood, and da 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 da, and so on, right, um, but coming here as an older person, and I'm like, okay, what are my options, I need to do something I can do quickly, and uh, get my foot um get my foot in so um i chose to become a nurse um there are different pathways so i'll do like a basic pathway you finish high school you have your um high school credentials you need your sciences obviously and then you can apply you, you need university credits you can apply for university and go into school there are it's a two-tier system so you have licensed practical nurses or you have registered practical nurses same thing just different province so that's a two-year program and if you do college um of college courses you can just jump right into that after after high school two years you're done your scope of practice is limited though but if you do your um, bachelor of science in um, nursing then you can go into any area of nursing pretty much and that's a four-year program. Also, there's if you are like a second career person like myself, if you have a degree from pretty much anything else, you can do um, in Ontario. I don't know about BC, but I know for sure in Ontario there are a few universities who offer a second entry program, and it's like a two-year intense degree program. Okay, and there's a standardized exam at some point? Uh, now it's um, standardized across North America, so it's the NCLEX um, exam. You write at the end of your four or two-year term, 
and you write that exam and upon successfully completing it, you can apply for your license. So one thing I haven't understood very well is that everyone who is an RN has gone through the same educational pathway, much like we do in medicine, but at some point there's a, a divergence into, you know, working in um, eMERGE or LDR or the OR or med surge. What does that educational process or specialization process look like as a nurse? So when you, um, so you're during school, you go on your clinical experiences and that exposes you to different areas of nursing. So you have gerontology, whether that's you want to work in like the nursing homes or um, you want to work in hospital care settings like acute care, rehab, they have multiple um, areas. So you're exposed to a number, I think a fair enough um, amount so that you can make an informed decision at the end. And you know, you pick up things like what you like, what you dislike, and um, and then at the end, any nurse who is um, licensed can work like in med surge. You don't need any additional training for like med surge areas. That's just your basic entry to um, practice. And all nurses are trained to be able to function in um, med surge areas, medical surgical areas. Um, if you want to specialize, like you want to go into ICU, any acute care operating room, um, labor and delivery require. So it depends. There is a course that's um, that's offered. You don't have to have it to work as a labor and delivery nurse. It's highly recommended. But they will also do training, like on the job training. But for like the operating room or ICU or eMERGE, you have to have your um, operating room nurse course or your critical care nursing course to work in those areas. All right, Tanisha. So probably more than any other non-physician profession, nursing has the most overlap with physicians' content and sort of direct practice. Could you help me delineate the two professions in my mind? Like, like what are some of the fundamental differences between nurses and doctors? All right. So it, we do have, I think, the most overlap. Um, and especially in like acute care areas, you work um, very closely with with physicians. So sometimes, depending on personalities too, some nurses tend to want to blur the lines a little bit because of experience and all of that. But there are um, fundamental differences. For one, it's um, training and scope of education and practice. Like um, doctors do more intensive uh, schooling than nursing. Nursing is typically a four-year um, baccalaureate program and you're done. Yes, you can do a little specialization, but those are short-term courses, like three months at the most. Um, so that, I think, is a fundamental difference. Um, what, what your role is, like nurses do not prescribe. Um, we do not do medical diagnosis. There is like a nursing diagnosis, but it would it would stem from a medical diagnosis. And even after we've diagnosed, yes, we can diagnose and say, I'm going to do this in terms of, okay, my patient is developing a bed sore. I wouldn't be the one to, to diagnose the bed sore, but I would, I can assess and see that it's there. And I can then formulate a plan to say, I'm gonna rotate them every two hours, change their positioning, use some pressure um, things to support those pressure points and so on. So I, I have that scope, but as it relates to um, providing extensive care, I can't just go off on my own and do that. I have to collaborate with a doctor who 
um, makes those um, type of decisions because ultimately they're responsible, um, which is another fundamental difference. Why I would never become a doctor is I don't want the responsibility. <laughs> you are really responsible for someone's life. And I know it sounds scary, and it, I think it's scary, but um, it just comes with a lot of responsibilities. And especially here, when, um, when you see how closely you work with the doctors in the OR, I am confident that if my patient is crashing, while I'm going to do the best for my patient, at the end of the day, it's not the, the burden is not on me. It's on the physician team around the patient. So, like those are really, really big ones. Um, I think scheduling too. Um, doctors work really long hours, like more than nursing. We get relieved at the end of our shift, no matter what. They can't hold you there, right? But I feel like doctors sometimes do like 24-hour calls or um, longer hours, and that's awful in my opinion. <laughs> so you've given us an example already, but could you, could you expound with the story about maybe a strong or dysfunctional working relationship between nurse and physician? The good one is, one I think is when you understand your role. I see the nursing role as a supporting in quotes a supporting role in terms of um, we are it, the, the, the beauty about healthcare now too is that things have changed it's now a team centered approach care so you're not lesser or less important than any member of the team right but um, we are in a supporting role and I find the fact that you have nursing at the, at the bedside 24 hours you can consistently um, monitor what's going on in the patient and then report if the changes to your to the physician. So they don't have to be there all the time and, and they can do more. Like a physician wouldn't be able to monitor 20, 40 patients, you know what I mean? But if you have like 10 nurses looking after 40 patients, they can report the changes and um, and the and things can be adjusted as um, patient care needs. So I think when that happens beautifully, it happens. Um, it's best you have best patient outcomes. The problem is when if a nurse may um, think that they can handle something, but it's really not within their scope. Um, and if they had reported it earlier, then the outcomes would probably be um, would be better. I'm not sure. Sometimes it's inexperience why things aren't reported early. Because if it's a new nurse and she's never seen anything like that and just not sure, um, the pathway would be consult another RN, someone more senior. And then, you know, just get a second opinion. Or if you're really, really not sure, you can always call the doctor. Um, doctors are on call overnight. And I understand. I mean, they work in the day. We're human beings, right? Some staff will call for everything. And not everything needs to be called for. You know, like as nurses, we are also, we can practice independently up to a certain scope, right? So a bad relationship would develop when you're just calling to say, oh, the patient's blood pressure is high. You know what I mean? As a nurse, you have orders for drugs. You can do something. So you wouldn't call to say my patient's blood pressure is 185 over 99, you know? You would call.
cause say my patient's blood pressure is 200 over i have done these things already nothing is changing mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so i feel like when you exert yourself um because you are knowledgeable and um, you work the the doctor has more trust in you so if you page them they'll answer because they know okay tanisha would have done these things before right so those when you develop those relationships because of the knowledge that you exert it, it works beautifully but when you're somebody who just paged just because or you page and they're like okay so what's the lab oh i don't know let me go look you know it shows that you're not prepared and then um not that then i would say people like you might say the doctor was mean but it's not really that they're mean it's just it's frustrating because you're not equipped and um you're wasting valuable time because they probably were in the middle of something or need to do something and they're there waiting on you because you just don't have all the information. So I feel like those things develop bad relationships in quotes, but when you, um, the same thing that you do well also develop good relationships because there's that trust that is needed. Yeah. So over the course of time, are there things that you've noticed physicians do that consistently help make your lives better or, say, easier to manage? Um, I think just respecting each other. Like, it's it's fundamental. <laughs> but it, it actually does go a long way. Like, um, so when I worked labor and delivery in Ontario, we had 15 operating rooms running per day. So it's a big center. And because it was a big center, you know, like, it's really high stress. And it's it medicine in general is high stress, right? But because it was such a large center, and um, I guess for um, efficiency, you would develop teams that would stay in certain services, so like orthopedics and so on, right? And um, and you'd have nurses who were consistently in those areas. But as you know, people call in sick or you take vacation. So there were times when you had the general nurses who would rotate to any room, they would end up in those areas. And honestly, there were doctors who would walk in the room and recognize that it's not, because I was not one in a specialized area, because I didn't want to be, I wanted to know everything, so I, I chose to go around, right? And they would walk into the room and they'd see you, and because you're not one of their team members, their face would just automatically change, and they'd be like, oh, it's, you know, they, I'm not a mind reader, but you can tell, like, it's like, oh, I don't have my usual, it's not going to be a good day. Or they would come in, and you're there, but one of the usual, especially in ortho, there's um, a big thing for for scrub. Like, scrubbing in ortho is probably the most challenging scrubbing in um, all of the operating room. Um, because there are lots of instruments, there's lots of putting together, and it's very, very um, hands-on technical so if you're not and you know nursing is female dominated if you don't know how to do use the drill and saw and those things and you're in ortho it can be intimidating right and he, he came in one day and Peter was a nurse that I worked with and he was an ortho um he specialized in ortho and he did a lot of scrubbing and he was like honestly the best and he came in the room and he saw Peter and he's like yes I have Peter today and um Fortunately, it was someone I developed a rapport with, so after he was all happy, and, 
And I'm like, and it's good to see you, Dr. So-and-so. <laughs> and he's like, yes, I'm happy to see you too. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> but, you know, we had a good rapport, so I could, I could say that. So it, it's, it's, I'm saying that to say when those things happen, other team members can feel left out. And even if you know your stuff, you might get nervous and just not perform at your peak. Um, do I know how to solve that? I don't, because you still need to develop efficiency. So yes, you do need people who specialize in areas, but I guess it's just how you approach it. Because the, the challenge is nobody wants their room to run late, and so you have all these other stressors going on. But the nice thing is when like you work in other areas, and if you take your job seriously, and a surgeon doesn't know that, and you work with them, and they, they work with you the first time, at the end, like I honestly worked with a, a, an orthopedic surgeon, and I was scrubbed with him, and he, he was very, very professional, and very respectful, and he said, you know, at the beginning, he's like, um, I haven't scrubbed with you before, and you know, we, I introduced myself to him, and um, said, you know, I like these things this way. And, you know, which I found to be very helpful because it made things easier for me. And at the end, what he did know was that I was pretty comfortable in ortho, but I just hadn't worked with him, right? And um, at the end of the first case, he's like, wow, Tanisha, that went smoothly. <laughs> and at the end of the day, he said, you know, thank you so much. We finished even before the end of the day. And, and then... He came back to work like two days later and guess who was scrubbing in his room and he's like, oh, Tenincho, you've got this. So just to see how the dynamics change because I took my job seriously and I did the best I could. Um, even though he didn't know me and he may have felt a little, you know, stressed at the beginning because he didn't know how the day would go out. Just seeing how you worked and the fact that he was respectful enough to say, okay, I like this things this way and gave you the heads up to say, okay, you can do X, Y, and Z to make things smoother. And I didn't take that as offensive because I thought he was doing something good. So I think how we put aside our, you know, our little differences and just be there for the patient because at the end of the day, it's a team and we're there for the best of the patient. Finally, are there any pearls of wisdom you have for the next generation of physicians coming through? with special mind in optimizing the relationship with nurses in order to maximize patient care? Uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing that things are changing. You know, we're not in the old days where it was doctor-nurse. Now it's a team, and um, people respect each other. Just respect um, the knowledge base that nurses come with, especially experienced nurses. Like, it can make or break just your whole experience. Um, when I worked labor and delivery, we had uh, students, med students coming through, and I had one med student. I was outside, but we could see our patients um, tracing. And I'm like, what's going on? My patient is having a D-cell, so I ran to the And the med student was in there. She was doing a badge exam on her own. And I said, who are you? Because I honestly didn't know who she was, right? And she said who she was. I'm like, I'm the nurse. You know, you should at least let me know you're here today and you're going to, you'd like to do something. Because even the physicians, they wouldn't go into the room to assess the patient without the nurse, right? And um, and she said, oh, 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 I'm so sorry. And I said, by the way, what was the exact, what did you assess? And she's like, I don't know, I don't know what I was feeling. And I said, you know, 
um, if I knew you were coming in here, I could help you, right? So I said to her, if you want, I can give you some guidance, you know, like when you go in, what you're feeling for and so on. And I was able to walk her through a budget exam. And she's like, oh, that was helpful. So I think value your colleague's experience and not be offended if um, if somebody gives you like um, advice or I know sometimes it may not come off in the best tone and we should try to do it in a loving way but I think just value the knowledge that a nurse has because it, it is even though they're not a doctor they've been in that room so many times that they know how it goes and they can and they can guide you in that regard. Well, Tanisha, thank you so much for taking the time to shed some light on your profession and helping us understand how we hopefully can interact with our nursing colleagues in a more optimized way. Thank you. You're welcome. It's good. And I, I see this as a teamwork and I know the future looks great because we're moving in that direction. And as always, thanks for joining us on Metamorphosis. For more episodes, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. Till next time, keep well. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 